Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth. Again, we are here. Um, so through snafus, just galore of technology, um, we are re-recording and I am without internet. So I'm on my cell phone as we do this today. So um, I'm excited to try something new. You know, there's just new stuff happening every day and we all get to learn new things. So today I'm learning how to do a Zoom podcast over the phone. Uh, so, but we do have a fantastic show in store for you today. Uh, once again, again, um, we are going to be chatting with Extension Forestry, uh, uh, Forestry and Research Specialist Chris Evans and also the Interim uh, State Master Naturals Coordinator. Um, but before we get to Chris, we are going to introduce our co-hosts who are with us every single week. We are joined by Katie Parker, Local Foods Educator in Adams County. Hello, Katie. Hey, Chris. How's it going in McComb today? You know, it's it's best uh, to just kind of, I'm doing okay. You know what? As a person, I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing good. How are you, Katie? I'm doing, doing great. Fantastic. No complaints here. Well, you know who is always uh, has a smile on his face is Ken Johnson. So Ken, a horticulture educator in Jacksonville, how are you doing today? I am doing great. <clears throat> I got your email this morning and all I could do was laugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the email that said the file was lost uh, where we were talking with Chris about maple syrup. So uh, yeah, we are redoing the show. So folks, this is gonna be the second time is the charm. We're not gonna shoot for the third. We're shooting for second time uh, on this one. But uh, so we're gonna be talking about maple syrup and Ken, Katie, tell me, are, are either of you uh, official maple syrup aficionados i i am not i grew up on the the fake stuff so i've not acquired the maple syrup taste quite yet i haven't either uh we grew up on store-bought fake stuff um so it'll be good to learn about it well i i'm i'm in the same boat as you but i um i would say when i started with extension i started working with argyle state park and they tap their own trees here and so it's, it's a fantastic experience, and I have learned to love the real stuff, maple syrup. And so to talk with us about that today is going to be uh, Chris Evans. Uh, so, Chris, uh, welcome to the show again. Thanks, Chris. I'm happy to be here again. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And so I have to ask, you know, um, when we recorded last time, we were just ending that really bad cold snap. Um, you know, we were down below zero even for some of our highs for some of those days up in northern Illinois at least and so um, you know you are putting out a lot of videos on Facebook regarding um, tree tapping uh, down where you're located at Dixon Springs in southern Illinois um, has did that cold weather put things on hold and how are things going right now um, it did put things on hold yeah and when we can talk about that and just how weather dependent maple syrup is but I guess the big news is the second time around it is sunny and 60 degrees outside uh, so the conditions have completely changed. So in, in addition to the weather conditions um, being that you're in southern Illinois you're kind of at the furthermost or most southern part for sugar maple does latitude also come into play with sap quantity or quality? Um, it does quite a bit and really both of those quality and quantity, but it's still all tied back to, to weather, um, particularly the unpredictability of our weather here. Um, maple syrup production really relies on uh, a gentle, slow kind of warm up in that late winter, early spring where you have 
periods of below freezing and then short periods of above freezing and it kind of gradually alternates between the two that's when you get really really good production right you get that um, freeze thaw cycle and you just kind of continually recharge and get more and more sap um, that's a little more predictable that kind of slow warm-up um, is more predictable as you move farther north down here in southern Illinois um, and anywhere kind of in this southern edge of, of sugar maples you get um, you don't get that as as consistently as you do in other places and so what happens here is um, we'll have periods of our winter where it'll be 50 degrees in the daytime and 40 degrees at night and it just never gets cold enough um, to, to kind of recharge things and so you'll have sections of the winter where you, you're not getting a drop of sap at all it just there's nothing coming out um, and then you know you'll get little runs where you'll you'll get some um, so what we found down here really is that our our sap comes in pulses you'll have two or three day periods where you get really good production kind of interrupted by longer periods where there's not much going on um, and then of course last couple of weeks it was it was really locked up right it was cold down here we actually had 13 days where it did not get above freezing and that is unusual for us in in those situations uh, nothing's happening the sap's frozen uh, it's or it's just not coming out so we're just in a waiting period um, so that all of that kind of leads to the fact that we have unpredictable um, sap flows and unpredictable then syrup um, production so our quantity is impacted our quality is impacted in the same way because of those periods of warm weather um, the issue with sap is you got to keep it cold the colder the better um, because that stops bacterial growth it stops the trans um, the transfer that the changing of the the sugars in the sap uh, over and um, having it cold clear no bacterial growth gives you that really high quality syrup the more warm temperatures you have that 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 syrup sits in or that sorry that sap sits in um, the kind of lower the quality um, um, can get and so in southern Illinois we have to be very careful about how we handle our sap we actually have a walk-in cooler down here we transfer our sap in there and it's set at 34 degrees just to try to keep our quality really high that's some of the stuff if you're farther north you have you have to deal with a little less so a lot of times when people are talking about making maple syrup typically they're using um, sugar maple for that are there do you guys do other types of maples to have other types of maples and are there any kind of taste differences between those so you can we don't ourselves we mm -hmm. are are fortunate down here that we have a lot of sugar maples in our our sugar bush and that's what we call a, an area you collect maple sap as a sugar bush but no anything that is in that genus that acer genus any maple um, of which there's five different maples, six different maples that are native to Illinois. Um, anything in that genus can legally be called maple syrup. It's all um, it's all kind of at that that level. Um, I don't think there's really any taste differences. So you can get um, pure maple syrup out of box elder maples. Um, you can get it out of silver maples, all the different ones. So in terms of of your final product, it's not different. But in terms of um, the effort needed to get it out of there, there's quite a bit of difference. Um, sugar maples are preferred because their sugar content of their sap is often or usually higher, as well as the amount of sap they produce that you can get out of the trees is often a lot higher. And that has a, a big influence on kind of how much work it is to get syrup. 
um, for instance, um, like if you have a 2% sugar content, and that's pretty typical for, for sugar maples, that's where you get that 43 gallons to one ratio where it takes 43 gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup. So that's just at the 2%. If you go down to 1%, which is a tiny drop, if you think about it in, in sugar content, which is more what you would expect with silver maples and, and red maples, that number that you need to make a gallon of syrup goes up to like 86 gallons of sap. Um, so it's just a lot more work. Um, it's a, a lot more effort. They're a little more unreliable in terms of their, their sap flows and as amount, amount of sap you can get. All that being said, don't let it stop you. If, if Ken, if all you have in your yard is a bunch of box elders, by golly, tap those things because it'll make some great maple syrup. So, okay, Chris, you mentioned a few of the the native maple trees that we have here in North America. I got to ask, though, what about Norway, Norway maple? As I look at the one in my side yard and I'm like, I would love to drill some holes in that darn <laughs> sucker. And if it dies, it dies because I don't care. <laughs> You know, that's actually a question I would assume yes, but I have not looked at that specifically. I do know that at Norway maple, one of the kind of key characteristics to identifying it is if you break uh, the petiole over on the leaves, it has kind of a latexy sap in it, right? The little white milky sap. So I actually do not know if then that transfers to the sap in the wood as well. Um, so I can't say for sure, although I assume yes, you can use Norway maples. I, I will experiment and I can report back. Um, and, you know, I, I might just top and kill the tree while I'm doing it. So we'll just, we'll see how that goes. That's quite all a, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of the Norway maple that we got here. <laughs> you, yeah, you need to prune it at ground level, right? <laughs> that's right. A good basil pruning. That's what we call it. Yeah. <laughs> and then can you tap other trees other than maples make syrup out of other trees? You can. Um, there's a couple other ones. So uh, black walnuts actually are reported to be um, a producer. You can make uh, syrup out of those. I tried it here last year and we didn't get a lot of production and um, we just couldn't get enough sap really to make maple syrup out of it. Though I've heard um, that in some places where they do make black walnut syrup, it's actually the price they get for it is a lot higher than maple syrup. So I'm going to love to try it. I've committed to trying it again next year. We're gonna tap a bunch of black walnuts and see if we can make some syrup. Uh, the other one people do report is um, sycamores, which again, we tried it one year and it didn't really work for us either. Birches is another one. And then you hear a lot about hickory syrup, but it's actually a little different. Hickory syrup, you're simply using the inner bark and you're kind of making a tea out of it. And then you sweeten the tea with corn syrup or something else. So it's more of a flavoring than a true sap based syrup. Um, historically, what was involved in harvesting sap and making syrup? The neat thing about uh, maple syrup is there's really not a lot of equipment needed, right? So historically, um, people used to use um, elderberry twigs or something that had a hollow pith in it, and then basically do what we do today in the sense of drill a hole in the tree or put a cut in the tree or some kind of damage, and then use the, the, the hollow uh, twig to kind of guide the sap out into some kind of storage container. Um, it's thought that, you know, Native Americans collected it. Uh, early settlers certainly collected uh, a lot of maple sap. Um, but I think most of the time, instead of going all making maple syrup, 
uh, especially with the early settlers, uh, my understanding is most of the time they actually took it all the way down to maple sugar, which is basically you're just drying it and getting rid of more and more of the water. Um, because it's easier to transport, it's more shelf stable, um, it doesn't go bad as easily. And so that's another um, kind of product you can make out of, of maple sap. You can make maple candy, maple fudge, maple uh, sugar, you know, those kind of things. I think those were probably historically a little more common um, kind of with early settlers than the true maple syrup. Kind of modern day, what kind of investment are people looking at? And if, if somebody has kind of a lone tree, you've kind of hinted at this, could they do this at home? Yeah, and that's the best part. You know, when I started um, in my personal journey collecting maple syrup and um, really became a full-on convert to, I don't even want to look at the, the fake stuff anymore, right? It's all about maple syrup. Um, we started just with a couple trees. I mean, if you have one tree in your yard, you can tap that tree uh, and all you really need, the only kind of specialized equipment that you need is a spile. And so a spile is that insert you put into the hole that you drill in the tree that guides the sap out and historically those were kind of uh, rolled metal spiles you've probably seen those and you just boil them at the end of the year to clean them with a hook on them to hang a bucket nowadays they're usually plastic um, but anyway they cost between 40 cents and a couple dollars per spile um, and you can get buy some food grade buckets and you're off to the races that way so if you only have a couple trees your, you know, your investment is $10, $15 worth of equipment and then some way to boil it down. Uh, I don't generally recommend boiling it all the way down in your kitchen because it produces a ton of steam and you'll peel your wallpaper. Um, most people boil it down outside with like a turkey fryer, a fish cooker kind of thing, or uh, even better, um, over wood heat. Right. And so I see the kind of most common thing for backyard people is to buy those like, um, buffet servers, those kind of square pans, rectangular pans, or the big cast iron pots or something, and then actually cook them down over a fire that way. Um, it's more fun than, you know, than boiling it in your house anyway. You can sit around outside, um, and it's cheaper, right? And it uses wood heat. Don't have to worry about bloody noses for a while, though, if you do it in the house. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Your, your plants will love you, too. <laughs> Have a tropical rainforest. That's true. Does, uh, does like cooking it over fire? Does the um, some of that wood smoke? Does that flavor translate to the syrup itself? Sometimes. Um, sometimes. So you know, if if you don't have a good closed system, you'll get ash a little bit and things like that in there. Mm -hmm. I would probably recommend trying to avoid that as much. You know, if you get a little bit, it might have a little bit of a smoky flavor, but it's pretty easy to get it off flavored by getting a little too much ash in there. Um, but really the, the heating is necessary because that's really where your maple flavor comes out in maple syrup in the senses. As you're heating it up, you're caramelizing those sugars and that enhances the flavor. And that's a big part of um, the flavor you get from maple syrup. If you could concentrate the sugars other ways, and there are a lot of other ways to concentrate them, um, you can get it thick and sweet but you miss a lot of the flavor without having um, the heat which is what you need chris i'm kind of curious about some of the systems out there too like oh i think it was last year we were driving around and we saw these like i think there are blue bags like stuck on the sides of some of these trees just in like a fence row 
Mm -hmm. And I assume that was maple syrup. Maybe it's an invasive species collection, but I was thinking <laughs> maple syrup. Am I right in, in that regard? You are. So that's a newer technique that people have, and it's super inexpensive. So they're called sap sacks. And so there are food grade plastic sacks that um, you zip tie onto a PVC, um, kind of a round piece of PVC and then you drill a hole in that. And so it's just, instead of buckets, it's basically a little bit more of a closed system. Uh, one of the problems with buckets is, you know, squirrels or moths or something may get into them. Um, so these just kind of help keep your sap a little cleaner. They're pretty um, inexpensive and you just throw the bag away and put a new one on the next year. We here, we started with buckets. We've done some of those sap sacks and we've kind of moved to the, what most people do that have more than 10 or 15 taps nowadays, which are, which is tubing. So we have kind of flexible tubing and, and we run everything together. All of our taps kind of coalesce those tubes downhill into a, a storage tank. And then that's kind of how we collect it. It's a lot easier than walking tree to tree collecting sap. So how many feet of tubing would you have? A lot. It depends on your system. So professional, um, you know, people that actually have um, kind of a commercial level, they'll have sometimes five, six, seven miles of tubing um, kind of strewn throughout their, their woods. Here, I think we're, um, we have about 95 taps or something like that um, here. And our system probably has, um, I don't know, about a thousand feet of tubing something like that. It's uh, the nice thing about that tubing, uh, the way it's set up is you actually leave it in the woods all year. So you don't have to re-put it up. Um, you kind of set it up so it, it's it's stretched between the trees and it's taut and it stays there. And then we have a system where we pump um, water and cleaner up through the tubings to get everything clean and sanitized at the end of the season. And then you have a little thing where you hook your, your spile so it's not, it's a closed system and it just sits there. The next year you come, you inspect it, you fix any leaks or anything and just tap it right back in place. So after that first year, it's um, not as much work putting it back out, which is nice. So if somebody is using buckets, how often do they need to empty those? You, you would want to in an ideal situation, you'd want to empty them every day uh, if you can. And the reason why goes back to what we talked about with weather, if that sap is sitting outside um, in the weather, especially if it's above freezing, it's exposed to bacteria. It, it, you're going to have impacts on the quality of um, your, the impacts of your sap impacts the quality of your syrup. So getting it out of those, those temperatures, getting processing it quickly or putting it in a cooler um, is the best way. If it's really cold and you had below freezing, sometimes the, I, the sap in those buckets can freeze and you can get by with doing it every few days. Um, but just it, the soon, the more often you check it, the higher the quality your final product's going to be. So is this something like canning where equipment and containers must be sterile? It is. Yeah. So you, you keep everything as clean as possible. So you won't introduce yeast or bacteria or something like that. And then in your final product, when you're, you're done boiling your, your, your syrup, it's kind of at that 67% sugar content, which is your target for, for um, syrup. Then you, you put it into sterilized jars or sterilized bottles. Again, you just, it's a food product. So you kind of need everything to be clean, sterilized um, that way. So Chris, you also mentioned being at like the Southern extent for like sugar maple and um, 
And when we look at climate change, you know, they're talking about species migration. I know it's a pretty complicated issue, but are you seeing that affect maple syrup production, whether it's in the backyard or commercially uh, in your neck of the woods or maybe even in our neck of the woods in central Illinois? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I haven't been at it long enough. I've been doing maple syrup personally 10 or 12 years now. Um, so I haven't seen uh, patterns in, in my kind of history of it, but there's definitely um, worries about that, particularly on the south end of its range. And with the prediction that, you know, we're going to get warmer over time and we're already seeing that happen, uh, we're, we're already at the edge of what's suitable for, for sugar maple. And it's only then likely that um, the suitability, the ideal conditions for sugar maple are going to kind of drift farther north and, and get away from us. So there is a worry that over time, um, not only will we lose the ability to collect um, maple syrup from sugar maples here, but we may actually um, start losing sugar maples as a, as a whole species out of the southern end of its range as it kind of it, it'll do well farther north because um, you know there's a lot more buffer there but at the edge of the range yes it is a concern i have heard from other um, cert producers farther north that their seasonality of when they tap and when the flows are has already changed in their lifetime in the sense that their flows are getting a little earlier now it's warming up earlier than it has in the past um, and so that's again it's it's changing things and also just kind of the uh, uncertainty of the weather like we had two weeks that was locked down cold right here um, it just makes it more unpredictable so we don't know what's going on so yeah it's it's a big concern for cert producers what's your what's your uh do you have like a company name a company name for your cert production oh uh, no so for me personally it's just we eat all of our syrup <laughs> My kids are voracious in terms of the, the syrup that we we uh, we consume so much syrup at our house. It's 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 uh, embarrassing. Are, are um, you guys related to Buddy the Elf? <laughs> but uh, we do a lot. Most of the syrup we do now is actually here with the Ag Center. So we do it with the university demonstration. Right. Um, yeah. So it's kind of fun. That's cool. But uh, we're planning this past year. This year we wanted to do a maple syrup breakfast. Um, and it just didn't work out for us um, because of COVID and everything. So we've stocked up on maple syrup and hopefully next um, next winter, we'll hold a maple syrup breakfast here as, you know, as an event. So how long will maple syrup keep? Is it something like honey where it's forever or does it eventually go bad? Um, pretty much indefinitely, yeah. So it'll keep a long time. Um, one, of the, one of the things about it, which is interesting though, is uh, it, if it's exposed to the sun, so if you have glass containers, you know, put it in and it's in the light, it'll actually darken over time. And so the color of syrup is part of the grading of syrup. So um, you get light amber, dark amber, you know, all these different grades. And so it can actually change somewhat the quality rating of the syrup. So most people either store their syrup in um, opaque bottles, right? So they can't see through it or they store them in boxes and things in the glass that way just to kind of keep the quality up but no once it's um you know if, if you hit that 67 percent um sugar content just right it should be fairly stable that way um if you go higher than that it tends to crystallize and you go lower than that it can spoil a little easier so when do you typically put taps out 
So that varies depending on where you're at. Um, for us here in Southern Illinois, our season can start depending on the year, sometimes as early as mid-December even. Uh, we were doing some forest management stuff here and cutting trees, including maples um, in, in December and the sap was already running. For us, for the at, for the, at the Ag Center, we typically um, tap that first day we come back from the holiday break. And we actually just pulled our spiles yesterday. So our season just finished up. Well, that was a lot of amazing information on maple syrup. So Chris, thank you so much. But we are also a question and answer show. So we must ask you, Chris, could you please help us answer some of these questions that came in? Uh, maybe not necessarily about syrup, maple syrup, but uh, some forestry related questions. Sure. Sounds fun. Awesome. <laughs> well, Ken, I think we have you down this week to kick it off. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind starting us off, please. Will do. So our first question comes from Warren County and a landowner would like to set up uh, some type of profitable timber. They're looking more toward their kids utilizing this investment. What do you suggest? Um, that's a question you get a lot, right? So people want to use timber as an investment. It's a fantastic long-term investment. So the answer to, to that landowner really um, kind of depends upon what they have right now. And so if they have existing forest in place, um, what they want to do is get an inventory of that forest, get an assessment of what they have, what trees are there, um, and then um, look at what kind of management steps they need to do to kind of guide those trees into the most profitability into the future. I'm guessing by the way um, the, it was worded that they probably don't have any forest at this point and they're looking at just planting forest on the ground so that when their kids um, you know, get of age, they'll have some income from that. If you're looking at planting forests, the, the biggest thing you can do is understand your soils, understand um, what grows best in the conditions that you have on your land. There's always um, the temptation from landowners, they wanna plant walnuts. Everybody's heard about how valuable black walnuts are and how they're wonderful trees and they are when they're grown in the right conditions. So if you plant walnuts in um, heavy clay or something like that, that it's not the right soil conditions, they're not gonna, they're not gonna yield good quality timber and they're not gonna be a good investment. So you need to figure out what soil you have on your land um, and choose the, the trees that grow best in those soils that are also good timber producers. Here in Illinois, um, black walnut definitely, our oaks, particularly our white oak, is a really good timber value tree, um, as well as maples. Sugar maple is a very good timber value tree um, as well. Um, cherry in the right condition can be as well. So understanding what that is, um, really the best way is to get a consultant forester that in from your area that knows the local conditions, know what grows best, and can evaluate your soils or your standing forest. Uh, Another thing I've noticed too is the, um, the the people don't want to thin trees out. You know, you plant them really densely at first, and then it's like, okay, you got to go in after a few years and you actually got to cut some trees down and thin them out. Now I've seen actually some people have lucked out if they planted some ash in with their forest plantings. So now the ash are dying. It's kind of opening it up a little bit, but don't forget thin those trees out because you can get some pretty puny stands if you have all that competition happening. Yep, yeah, absolutely. And so you want that competition at first. So what you wanna do is um, 
to get quality timber, if you're talking about timber products, so a value in timber, you want, it's all based upon a straight, clear log. So a straight tree with no limbs, you know, for eight or 16 or more feet, that's where you get your, um, that's where you get your money from trees, right? So having them close together at first does a couple things. It encourages them to one kind of race to get to the, the top, right? To get above each other. So they tend to grow, they tend to grow straight and tall. And it also creates a little more shade at first so that they're going to prune those lower land, uh, lower limbs kind of by their own, naturally prune those. And that that's kind of getting you that, that straight um, limb free uh, trunk. But you're absolutely right, Chris, at, at a point then that competition becomes too great, they become stunted and there's not enough energy to go around to maintain all of those trees at the density that it was planted when it was young. They start suffering, they don't grow as much and uh, there's a lot of issues. So you need to thin them fairly regularly, but it takes um, somewhat of an eye to know, you know when they've um, reached the point where they need to be thinned and when they are allowed to grow. Because if you thin them too early, then they get those side limbs, they don't self prune and then you get knots and other defects in the, the logs. So our next question comes from McDonough County and a landowner has cleared out a black walnut patch from his woods and would like to plant edible walnuts, preferably English walnut. What does he need to know about planting edible walnuts? It's a good question. Uh, first, I'll definitely say that black walnuts are edible. So I don't want people to think that, uh, that they're not. And actually uh, we collected a bunch of black walnuts um, my family did this year and processed them and um, oh, they're delicious in ice cream, right? Their black walnuts are fantastic. Um, they are a little harder to handle. You'll get your hands stained and, and they're a little hard to get the nut meat out. So if you are interested in uh, English walnuts or something else, again, if your soil is right for those plants, that can be a great food product, a great nut tree to plant. Um, the main difference is, and it goes back to what we just talked about with timber trees, where you grow them kind of tight at first and you're trying to um, make them have a straight, clear um, trunk free of limbs for a, a long ways. It's really the opposite conditions when you're looking at nut production trees. You want them ideally to be a little shorter. You want to have a well-developed crown, large uh, canopy there that has the most the maximum potential to produce nuts. And so in that case, you're looking at your spacing, at your planting um, nut producing trees much wider than you would otherwise. So look at that, look at um, kind of what the recommended spacings are for the trees that you plant. And also sometimes you need to make sure that um, the trees you get will, you know, if you only do one or two, sometimes you have to get another one that can pollinate it. Um, I know pecans are that way. You have to get a couple varieties. Um, so just kind of do your homework, but um, just realize that your spacing is going to be different. The way that you prune them is, is going to be different. The way you kind of care for the, the land will be different in a, a nut production versus a timber production stand. And I can attest to that the uh, black walnuts will stain. Our neighbors got a tree that likes to drop walnuts in our yard and we collected them one year and decided I'd take all the, the holes off by hand without gloves and uh -oh. my hands were stained for <laughs> quite some time after that. <laughs> oh, it does not come off. You know, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Wear your gloves if you're going to do that. Yep. Learn from my mistake. So our next question comes from Knox County. Um, a vegetable grower has some old Austrian pines that are dying and need to, and they need to rebuild their windbreak. 
Uh, they would like to include plants that also contribute to their farm with edible crops for harvest. Do you have any suggestions for them? Yeah, I, I, I do. And I, I love that question. I love that approach to uh, managing your land. It's dual purpose, kind of how you can get things out of it. And there's a couple um, couple trees or a couple plants that I would recommend. Um, and I guess to start with, I like windbreaks that are multi-level. So instead of, instead of just having one big evergreen tree, uh, you know, I like having taller trees, mid-sized trees and shrubs kind of in a level, you know, growing together um, for a windbreak. I think you get a lot of value and it, it tends to maintain itself pretty easily when you have those multiple levels. So I would look at, especially that shrub layer, doing things like um, hazelnuts. Hazelnuts are a great food crop that grows really well in Illinois. Um, we have some of the, the hybrid American and filbert hazelnuts on my land. They do really, really well. So that's one I think you can plant in that shrub layer as a component of your windbreak that can be a really good producer. Um, the other may be elderberries. Um, elderberries tend to do pretty well. They grow pretty thick. Um, they're easy to maintain. Um, and they're a producer of, um, you know, they're heavy producer of fruit. So those are kind of two species that I would look at adding into a, a windbreak if you're looking at getting some, some production out of it. So our next question comes from Adams County and their parents have just passed away and they had some walnut trees on their property. How do we determine the value of these trees? They had mentioned they're at all stages, some young and some old. Okay, good question, absolutely. Um, the value of a tree depends on a lot of things. Um, even as far as the location that that tree's at and how easy that tree is to access, right? So if it's a harder tree to access, it's down a hill, it's over a cliff or something like that, um, the timber buyer has to take that into account because of the cost it's, it, it's involved in getting that tree out of there. Also the distance to the sawmills, um, yeah, the farther away you are from a sawmill that would take that tree, the more expensive it's going to be. So timber prices and the value of timber to the landowner, the person that owns the timber, is really, really specific to the individual situation. And because of that, it's hard to um, generalize the price of, of trees that somebody will get. Um, the other thing is that the quality of a tree, right? And we've mentioned it earlier, if you have a, a, a big walnut, but it's full of knots or some rod in it, um, it's not gonna be near as, as valuable as a, a similar size walnut that's clear and straight and, and not free, you know, things like that. So really what um, a landowner that wants to get a sense of how much their trees are worth, whether they're walnuts or any trees, it would be getting a consultant forester, somebody in there that's familiar with the area that 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 regularly kind of administers um, timber sales, that knows the current values and knows the timber buyers to do an assessment on your land. And so that's for a fee, fee but they would come in, um, look at your trees, look at the ones that are marketable and, and look at their quality and basically come up with a list of the trees that are sellable, marketable trees their value so you can get a sense of what to expect in terms of how much return on investment you can get from a timber cell. Um, the other thing that's useful to do that is um, a, a consultant forester will actually help administer a sale if you want them to for, for a fee as well, but they will then market their timber to multiple um, timber buyers. They can um, uh, 
kind of mark your timber so that you're doing it in the you're harvesting the trees in a healthy way so you can get um, the best price for the best type of harvest as well so i i strongly recommend anybody that's interested in in selling trees to get a professional um, forester to kind of assist with that. All right, our final question is also from Adams County. Uh, we are considering clearing some elm and black locust trees. They look to be in good shape. How do we find someone local to harvest the trees? All right, um, similar answer to the last one in the sense that getting a consultant forester is a good idea. If that's not the route you wanna take, you can look at the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. They have a website. Uh, the forestry division does, and it, it, it lists all the licensed and bonded timber buyers in the state. And so that's somebody that if you just want to sell your timber and you don't want to get into a, a, a management plan necessarily, um, you can just contact local timber buyers that way. I tend not to recommend that because I think generally people get a lower price that way for the reasons I said earlier. And, and some of it is the fact that you say they're in good condition, your trees are ready to, to cut. Sometimes uh, a really good high quality tree, if you leave it, if it's the right kind of tree in the right condition for a small period of time, it'll be, it'll jump in value. And that's basically as it transitions from one type of product you can get from that tree to another. For example, you could get um, boards out of that tree or saw logs, you know, out of that tree, or you could get veneer. And so a veneer, um, product out of a tree is worth a whole lot more per bird for board foot than just um, boards basically right and so having somebody to help you and look at that tree and say yes that tree is valuable but it's going to be three times as valuable if you wait five or ten years you know and so it, it just goes back to managing your forest in a in, a, in the context of a plan and harvesting trees within that plan is going to be the best thing that any landowner can do. Um, by doing that, you're you're harvesting in them in a way that improves the genetics, improves the quality of your forest over time, so that your um, your harvest are going to get more and more uh, lucrative, I guess you would say, over time because you're improving your forest over time, versus the risk of just selling your trees one time without any kind of plan. There's always the risk that um, you're just going to cut your best trees and you're actually depleting your genetics you're depleting the quality of your forest over time and um, it's easy to do um, if you don't know what you're doing right so that's why getting a professional forester involved um, and, and building your forest in, in through a long-term management plan I think is kind of the best strategy for anybody that owns forest and I I would agree I mean just being on some of these walks with these consultant foresters professional foresters it can seem so overwhelming when you're looking at several acres of woodland, like, what do you do with this? You walk with them and you learn so much and the plan does start to evolve in front of you. And it's, it's so helpful. Yeah, it, it is. And the other thing that happens too, I think is um, getting the data and it's, it, and forestry, I think among all, amongst all the natural resources, forestry is probably the most data driven kind of um, side of that where they use inventory data that tells them more about the forest than you can sometimes see with your own eyes. And I've done that before. I've walked in a forest and said, boy, you really don't have enough regeneration on your oaks here. You need to do this or that. But then you actually go in and you do the plot work and you kind of look at it in a, in a, and look at the data uh, in a 
more intense way than just walking through the woods and it tells you the kind of the real story and you can really see what's going on so i i like that forestry uses data and and i think it it gets gets it more of a scientific approach to management well that was a lot of wonderful information chris evans thank you so much for doing this again um i think we can count this in our reporting as two episodes right we can oh i am yeah sure <laughs> yeah, i would i would definitely would say that um oh my goodness but thank you so much chris for for being back here and just uh this is a wonderful i love having you on and even though we've done this twice now i'm i've learned more things so thank you so much happy to do it well the good growing podcast is produced by wendy ferguson and edited by me chris enroth a special thanks goes to our co-hosts who are here every single week. Ken and Katie, thank you so much for being here once again to take us through the uh, trials and travails of maple syrup and forestry. Yeah, thanks, Chris Evans, for joining us. We should record every episode twice. <laughs> right. <laughs> our backups have backups this time, yeah. <laughs> the more you hear something, the more you'll retain it, right? Yep. Sure. Yes, thanks again, Chris and Chris and Katie, let's not do this one again next week. Let's do another episode. Let's do something different. Yeah, so we're going to be talking with uh, Jennifer Fishburne next week about beekeeping. And so I'm excited to be talking with Jennifer about kind of the other sweet, sticky thing that we can harvest uh, uh, using our natural resources, in this case, honeybees. So looking forward to that episode. Well, listeners, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching. And as always, keep on growing.